Blog Talk Radio. No mind your national 
This is Charles Collingsworth at the White House in Washington, D.C. For many of you, this will be your first visit to this historical landmark. Our tour through these hallowed halls will be conducted by the First Lady. Father, and your white great-grandfather sold 
killed my great-grandfather and your white-grandfather raped my grandmother and your father stole, cheated, lied, and robbed my father. What kind of a fool would I have to be to say, come, my friend, to the white daughter and son? Good evening, America. This is your president. Please listen carefully to the announcement I'm about to make. After careful consideration and research, Vice President Duke, Congress, and myself have concluded that black people have not advanced technologically. Their educational testing scores are on a rapid decline. The vast majority of them are on welfare and producing babies at a faster rate than they can support them, and we will not carry them anymore. We are left with no other choice but to put slavery back into effect. All blacks will report to the designated camps in their area to receive further orders. The only blacks excused will be those serving in the United States military and the police. Any blacks who do not cooperate will be terminated immediately. I repeat, slavery is back in effect. We are That's what I told you. I know you heard what the president said, and if the nigga don't move, then he's dead. It's time for us to take the stand. Woman to woman and man to man. Blood pressure through your veins, you feel the fear. Who'd have thought that it could happen here? In the land of the free, home of the brave. The year's 95, you're a slave. Get a 
or nodded your last four numbers. This is the 22nd day of October, 2023. That's for a little historical reference on an aspect of your history and our history is that in 1851, Sojourner Troops spoke at Women's Rights Convention in Ohio. Also on this date, we have John Carlos and Tommy Smith gave the historic Black Power salute at the 1968 Olympics. Those are just a little mini facts that we'd just like to share with you in terms of some significant history making that our people have made on this particular date. Like always, you know, Africa on the Mood, the way we get started with our party is to introduce to you our political panelists and analysts for today's program. The structure of our program entails first segment, what's going on in your world and the community, along with, as always, we will always introduce to you our political panelists and analysts. And then we will follow by a special guest today, Brother Agnuma from Cuba C, and we'll close out with some final thoughts and announcements. So that's the order for today's program. At this point in time, we can bring in our political panelists and analysts. And if you are a political panelist and analyst today on the program and you're on the board right now, I'm asking everyone to do me a favor. Please hit one so I can recognize your number. Please hit one now. If you are a panelist and analyst for today's program, please hit one. Thank you. At this point in time, you'd like to bring in Brother Hackey, who is a member of the African Wellness Wellness Association, and we'd like to welcome him to After On The Move. Welcome, Brother Hackey. Brother Africa, thanks for having me. My name is Hackey Kamathe Mashoki. Current I'm with African Awareness, and of course, Brother Africa, you know my thing is institution building. But certainly, you know, in our desire to create those institutions in the community, there's certain realities we have to confront at some point in this society. Namely, we got, we got to begin focus on the rise of being that, the being that class in the society. And what's interesting about this being that class, among many of these individuals, there's a peculiar uh, psychology that exists among them, which is predisposed uh, to do all kind of horrible things under the guise of maintaining power. So in that context, when we talk about the rise of the being that class, we have to understand fundamentally the South is going to play a huge role in terms of the, the evolution of the billionaire class, you know, as the leaders of the society. Now, having said that, Brother Africa, I want you to check this out. Damon Lusk, a political science professor, once opined, quote, a bunch of billionaires and intellectuals on the right are waiting in the wings to impose a dictatorship on the U.S., end quote. What was once unthinkable is now manifesting in full view. Lusk theorized the road to dictatorship is orchestrated by billionaires' control of both the economy and the political apparatus controlling political decisions. This reality is complicated by attacks on political pluralism that values democracy as a principle. Leading this attack on democracy is a configuration of plans to weaken government's regulations, erosion of laws undermining human and civil rights by elevating the power of billionaires and their minions. Elevation of billionaire, billionaire power depends on acceptance of large blocks of the population. Individuals contend with bestowing vested power on elites who are deemed intrinsically more intelligent than the population at large. Implicit in this, this calculation is the role red or conservative states must play in establishing social political conditions, ensuring the rise of the billionaire class and establishing dictatorships in the U.S. As red, state, as red states goes, 
uh, the Southern states have played an indispensable role in formulating the conditions and legitimacy of a billionaire takeover with little or no realization of the very destructive ramifications if total power is ceded to billionaires. Now, this strategy, the Southern strategy, for lack of a better word, appears to be exceeding nicely in the Southern states for numerous reasons. First, the psychohistorical dimensions of the South makes the Southern region of the U.S. vulnerable to political manipulation by elite by elite control media outlets. In addition, the rural character of Southern states makes possible the expansion of churches teaching a Western brand of Christianity which emphasizes politics over spirituality. Unlike Eastern Christianity out of Ethiopia and embraced by Coptic Christians, Western Christianity allegiance to the state increases the level of receptivity, receptivity to false information endorsed by state and or pro-state institutions, including the media. On average, for every 10,000 Southerners, there is an estimated 15 churches. Now, given this concentration of churches, the highest in the country, messages from elites just reinforce ultimately shaping perception of the vast number of Southerners. However, the broader strategic impact of targeting the South, justifying being their influences, comes down to numbers. The South may be the poorest region, but 40% of the U.S. population resides there, totaling over 127 million people of which 54% of the total African population resides there in the South. Now, if the South region embraced the empowerment of billionaires, these numbers or sizable portions of those numbers alone would be sufficient to enhance the status of billionaires, thereby enhancing their fraudulent legitimate claims as successful individuals that best know how society should be organized. Now, no one should underestimate the maniacal search for power among many billionaires, Social scientists have long discussed the relationship between acquiring wealth for wealth's sake, not really needing additional wealth for material existence. Defined as sociopaths or people without a conscience, acting without feelings of guilt, remorse, or shame, such individuals have no sense of personal responsibility to society or its members. Individuals content to blame social ills in society as individual defect, they consistently blame the poor for their dilemma, while formulating policy through politicians and lobbyists to ensure the poor encounter hurdles that ensure their marginalization, <coughs> whether it's declining wages, unemployment, or poorly funded schools. In fact, these anti-democratic gestures are the staple of the billionaire's handbook. In this regard, ideology simply becomes a means to maximize billionaire control without regard to the injustices formulated in its wake, with only accumulation of more power, both socially and politically, as the sole priority. Accumulation of wealth becomes a means to express power, and that it means to enhance the material well-being of the poor. By capitalism standard, status is achieved not by showcasing opulence or wealth, but by denying others access to full actualization or the possibility of being the best they can be in providing for their, for their families. In other words, the value of most being their lives is defined by the level of disarray in the poor people's lives. Two quick examples. One, Richard Ulan, billionaire founder of the Foundation for Government Accountability, has been funding politicians to end political initiatives in states and showing policy in favor of the citizenry while negating billionaires' access to exploit them, working to ensure it becomes extremely difficult to enact change. So, so if, for example, infrastructure repair could employ hundreds or maybe thousands of people, Erlein would oppose because such initiatives would undercut potential profits because it involves the public sector too much. Secondly, Peter Thiel, another billionaire, goes a step further. He stated, quote, 
freedom and democracy are incompatible, end quote. In other words, billionaires' ability to make profit are curtailed whenever society seeks mandates for jobs, creation of affordable housing, better wages, or quality education. The same people who insist society problems are a result of the irresponsible poor consistently demonstrate the degree to which sociopathic inclination rises to the surface to disempower the poor. Fortunately, the sickness or this sickness does not permeate the entire world. Mindful of human needs, some states like Cuba, Venezuela, Nicaragua, and China have embarked on a mission to uplift humanity. Utilizing centralized bureaucracy in various capacities, corruption is monitored while the health education is steadily improving, despite foreign policy by the U.S. While Cuba possesses one of the best education systems in the world, China has lifted 800 million people out of poverty over a relatively short period of time, a first in human history. So what is it that distinguishes these societies from the U.S. in the word philosophy? Money generated in these societies are earmarked for the investment of their people with an eye on improving the human condition globally. In the U.S., monies generated are used to benefit billionaires mostly. Billionaires use these monies provided to them by financial institutions to crush any measure that threatened to empower the citizenry or weakening their control. Typically, billionaires would fund politicians handsomely to endorse policy in their interests. In 2022, billionaires spent over $8.9 billion in political funding, of which $17.19 billion was specifically for political action committees. Ironically, in the U.S., homelessness could be ended with just $20 billion. How is it that billionaires can spend so freely engaging in unauthorized bribes while negating the life-affirming interests of his own people. In a nutshell, self-interest as defined by billionaires could never incorporate altruism that is a benefit to all in society. It seems empathy is totally excluded from billionaires' lexicon that sees self-interest to the exclusion of all other concerns, even the longevity of the nation itself. And this appears exactly the case. The 27 billionaires who bankroll all Republican political action committees do so in part because of the monetary rewards of $82 billion in profits resulting in changes to tax laws, undeclared investments, and deductions. In addition, every dollar billionaires fund to politicians, 74 cents is subsidized by taxpayers in terms of lost tax revenues. Transfer of wealth is successfully executed from the poor to the wealthy, but the economic cost of government's budgets is huge. Ensure more unemployment, more homelessness, poorer schools, and increasing alienation. For most conscientious people, such conditions would warrant concern, particularly if the country has the means to address such social de- decline. Unfortunately, billionaires in the U.S. have a difficult time discerning what is right from what is wrong. In other words, the quintessential meaning of sociopaths. And with that meaning, when it takes all and how victory is achieved is the only measure of success. It doesn't bode well for society or humanity generally, Brother Africa. With that, I'll close. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'd like to bring in Brother Anthony, who is an organizer and member of the All-African People's Revolutionary Party. We'd like to welcome him to Africa on the Move, Brother Anthony. Welcome. Can you hear us, Brother Anthony? While we wait for Brother Anthony to come forward, we'll go to Brother Moses, who's a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. Brother Moses, welcome to Africa on the Move. 
Thank you. Thank you, Brother Africa, and greetings to everyone within the sound of my voice, especially the illustrious panelists. My name is Robert Andrew Moses, and I've been in the struggle for scientific socialism from the moment I was introduced to Marxism, the father of scientific socialism, during a government class in my high school years back in 1968. I call Marxism the race to cure racism. I bear witness that there's one God, Jesus, who is the author and finisher of my faith, and that Mao Zedong is his messenger for government. Fathers, help your children. I, I believe in not reversing correct verdicts. Therefore, I'm for pro-choice, and I vote. I bear witness that women hold up half the sky. Therefore, I'm for the Equal Rights Amendment, E-R-A-S. The struggle continues to be how to unite the many to defeat the few. The struggle continues to be the correct path versus the incorrect path. The correct idea versus the incorrect idea. The struggle continues on all fronts, in all walks of life, in all points in history, as we continue into the future, knowing that today is a day we've never seen and that tomorrow is a day we've never seen and we'll never see them but once. And so we must seize the times. This is the revolutionary times. The bastion of reaction is, is on fire, and we must recognize the times and seize the times. This is, I'll, I'll just leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. And from Brother Moses, I believe we have Sister Eleanor who also is a member of the D.C. Metro Coalition in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution. We're going to bring you Sister Eleanor. We would like to welcome you to Afghan News. Sister Eleanor. Um, thank you. Good evening, Brother Africa and fellow panelists and to our audience in the United States and abroad. My name is Eleanor Johnson. I'm an environmentalist, an artist, and an educator, and I'm delighted to be on this evening's show. I'm broadcasting this evening from Sibley Memorial Hospital in Washington, D.C. Thank you. Thank you, Sister. Thank you, Sister Elmore. Let's see if we go back to Brother Anthony. Can you hear us, Brother Anthony? Yes, sir, I can. Welcome to Africa on the Moon. Um, uh, revolutionary greetings to you, Brother Africa, the fellow panelists, and the listening audience. My name is Anthony Williams. I'm an organizer for the All African People's Revolutionary Party of GC. Object of this pan Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. Thank you, Brother Anthony. You are listening to Africa on the Move as your host. Brother Africa, what we want to do today and always on our program, we want to enlighten you and stimulate you with information so you can think and from time to time introduce you to various organizations so you can become more active and think more clearly. We understand our people are lacking organization, and while organization cannot defeat the enemy. So we'd like to encourage everyone to get organized 
and you think more critically. And one of the best ways to do this is to educate yourself by constantly learning and taking in information. So what we're going to do right now, we're going to pause for a cause and take a rubber share culture break, play you some music inspirations, and when we come back, you can find our segment of what's going on in your world and the community, and you can join us by calling in at 323-679-0841. This is Brother Africa, and you're listening to Africa on the Move. Brother, brother, there's far too many of you dying. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love here today. Father, father, we don't need to escalate. You see, war is not the end. For only love can conquer hate. You know we've got to find a way to bring some love and kiss here today. Pick it light and pick it fast. Don't punish me with brutality. Talk to me so you can see.
cold convention. Talking of your crusades, talking of your nation, and other things too terrible to mention. And you proclaim your Christianity, you proclaim your love of God, you talk of apple pie and mine. I've just got one question, can I want an answer? Tell me, who would Jesus bomb? Cause they're not Jews like him Maybe Jesus would bomb the Afghans On some kind of vengeful whim Maybe Jesus would drive an M1 tank And he would shoot Saddam Who would Jesus bomb? On the TV and on the battleship, I've seen you in the house on the hill. And I've heard you talking about making the world safer and about all the men you have to kill. And you speak so glibly about your civilization and how you have the moral higher ground. While halfway around the world, your explosives smash the buildings, you could only hear the sound. But maybe Jesus would sell landmines and turn on his electric chair. Maybe Jesus would show no compassion for his enemies in the lands way over there. Maybe Jesus would have flown the plane that killed the kids in Vietnam. Who would Jesus bomb? Hear you shout with confidence as you praise the Lord And you talk about this God you know so well You talk of Armageddon and your final victory When all the evil forces go to hell Well, you best hope you've chosen wisely on the right side of the Lord And when you die, your conscience, it is clear You'd best hope your atom bombs are better than the sword At the time when your reckoning is here I don't think Jesus would send gunships into Bethlehem Or jets to raise the towns of Timorese I don't think Jesus would lend money to dictators Or drive those SUVs I don't think Jesus would ever have dropped A single ounce of napalm Who would Jesus bomb? Jesus bomb. Who would Jesus
like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. As you know, our political panelists and analysts going to be in the seat, and they're going to take the heat. As they define it, they're going to stand behind it. This is the segment we would like to hear from you as well in terms of what's going on in your world and the community. Uh, dial in at 323-679-0841. So let's get started and continue this party by bringing in our sister Eleanor and we'll let you lead us off, sister Eleanor. What's going on in your world and the community? Well, I have been uh, struggling with uh, my, uh, health issues with my health, and um, I'm sitting here right now with. Uh, uh, Angela, Ray, and Mimi, and uh, we're all listening to Africa on the Move together uh, at Sibley Memorial Hospital, and uh, we also have listeners over at the Renaissance uh, Subacute Rehab uh, here at Sibley in Building D. Uh, A lot of what's been going on is seeing the devastation of uh, the Israeli uh, apartheid against the Palestinians and the great atrocity of the last week, the bombing of the hospital, the killing of hundreds of children, and families, it, it was an atrocity. And how the U.S. and Israel try to portray it as uh, uh, Hamas. Well, the people in the southern region of the of, of the planet tend not to believe that. And. Uh, I don't know what the goals of the people in the northern region are. Well, we do know that their goals are to isolate Russia and to isolate the the, uh, Ukrainian people and the Dumbas region from Russia. And uh, the thing that's so shocking is that if the if the Ukraine becomes an independent country, suddenly one of Russia's oldest cities, uh, uh, Odessa, will become uh a part of a new country called the Ukraine. So we we see these atrocities and we see that why the CFR continues to be used in four countries in Southern Africa, the Europeans have long depended on the Russian uh, commodities for both heat 
while the French depend on uranium from Niger uh, to provide electricity for France and 75% of Europe. So what we see is uh, the gerrymandering of Russia and the and the polarization of Russia, and uh, that's pretty much what's going on in my world. And to see this horrible, horrible genocide, and how the Palestinians are separated from each other, how they have no right to visit each other if they're a certain age. Uh, husbands and wives cannot meet and 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 visit each other. They are forced to stay apart. Mm-hmm. And we see just such incredible conditions. It reminds us of South Africa's apartheid or the U.S. apartheid. So uh, this is what we see happening, and this is what I see and what is reflective of our our world today. And we're hoping to see a change, a political change. And uh, this is uh, one of my biggest preoccupations uh, to see liberation for Russia and Africa, for Africa and the global south to be liberated. And we, the Sahel region of Africa is really suffering due to the environmental crises and we and we see growing numbers of environmental refugees uh, leaving Africa, trying to make it into Greece, into Italy. And we see Eurocon trying to stop them um, from uh, Libya, coming into Libya and also coming in to Eastern Africa. And we see the refugees uh, of Europe. We see, we see, well, let me just end it right there for now. Thank you, Sister Eleanor. Um, we are glad to have you participating today. Um, we know that you are in a healthcare institution trying to get well. Um, we will suggest, in terms of showing our uh, humility, we will ask you that at this point in time, we want you to relax at this point and um, just listen in, and we want you to um, make sure that you are giving the proper space of munition to get well quicker. So 
We thank you for your contribution to today's program and continue to listen in for this program. And we want you to get well. So next we go to Brother Haki. Brother Haki, what's going on in your world and the community? <coughs> well, Brother Africa, you know me. I, I got to keep it 100. You know, I got to keep it real. You know, I'm not much into uh, prevarication. You know, I'm pretty much, you know, straight up when it comes to disseminating information. One of the things when we talk about this question of criminality, at some point we have to appreciate the fact that the state also is involved in criminality. In fact, their criminality has much more daily repercussions for the population at large as opposed to, say, some, some, some individual single-handedly committing you know, criminal offenses. But in any event, this question in terms of state's criminality I think is very important. And there's a case that sort of highlights that state's criminality, and I want you to listen to this very closely, uh, Brother Africa. In 2004, Leonard Cure was convicted of armed robbery of a Walgreens in Dayton Beach, Florida. There was no physical or forensic evidence tying him to the crime. However, in order to improve the odds of convicting an innocent person, law enforcement resorted to the usual chicanery or deception to secure a com- conviction. Police in this case showed pictures of potential suspects, among which Ms. K- Mr. Cure's photos were prominently featured. After viewing the photos of the potential suspects, in other words, individuals most likely guilty, according to the police, a lineup was conducted in which Mr. Cure was parked. Motivations of the police to convict Mr. Cure was in no small, small part due to prior convictions by Mr. Cure. Now, the strategy to bias the victim to see Mr. Cure as the most likely culprit was successful. Trial was held, and Mr. Cure was sentenced to 16 years in prison. Mr. Cure maintained his innocence, and after four appeals, his pleas captured the attention of the innocent project who assumed his case. Innocent Project was able to secure ATM receipts, proving Mr. Cure was miles away when a robbery occurred. This begs the question, why wasn't the information presented at the original trial? In a word, public defenders. Public defenders are tasked with an impossible burden of representing indigent or poor defendants. Lacking both resources and time to conduct an adequate defense, the reality is investigating elements of a crime are impossible in showing criminal con- <coughs> in showing criminal conviction or dependent on plea bargains, you know, as the only remedy. The sad reality is one out of 20 poor defendants are falsely convicted in U.S. courts. Lyndon Curie, which just happened to be one of the two million prisoners in the U.S., caught up in a justice system which prospers from incarcerating a large number of people. In fact, the U.S. incarcerates more people than anywhere in the world. Now, Mr. Curie was eventually exonerated and received $817,000 from the state of Florida for wrongful imprisonment. Lack of a Effective representation was not a consideration in this ruling because the Constitution only mandates legal representation of the poor, not effective legal representation of the poor. This understanding of the constitutional inspired indifference, indifference of justice would figure prominently in Mr. Q's motivations in the state of Georgia on the fatal night he was killed. While visiting his mother in Georgia, he was stopped by a deputy for allegedly driving over, over the speed limit. Being placed under arrest, Mr. Q asked, if speeding constitutes a fine, the deputy responded, in Georgia, quote, in Georgia, speeding is a criminal offense, meaning jail and or prison time is a possibility. At this point, Mr. Cure's demeanor changed, indicating the deputy's words had invoked an emotional response. It, it is no secret post-traumatic stress disorder often accompany individuals and during long periods of prison. In addition, he had spent 16 hours for a crime he did not commit. Perhaps the idea of returning to this type of purgatory caused Mr. Cure to panic. The ensuing tussle appears to be an attempt by Mr. Cure to flee the scene 
as a means of avoiding returning to prison on malicious charges fabricated by the state. After, <clears throat> after all, in his mind, it had happened before. Now, Leonard Curie was subsequently shot and killed by the deputy leaving in his wake lots of questions <laughs> in his aftermath. Now, the argument certainly can be made about absent corruption and collusion and a more humane approach to the criminal justice system. His emotional state would have never have been impacted adversely, meaning confronting provocative challenges would not have been an issue when stopped by the deputy. Mindful of the case, of a similar case of Keith Broder, the 60-year-old youth of the Bronx, this comes to mind. Incarcerated for three years without a trial or conviction for allegedly stealing a backpack, the indifference to human suffering is, in, in criminal justice is astounding. Browder killed himself at 22 years of age, unable to cope with the psychological trauma of being subjected to inhumane conditions that typically exist in jails and prisons. Then expecting the trauma, the trauma, the trauma inflicted mentally on humans to simply disappear upon release from incarceration. Then the curious demise is a perfect example of the consequences of an insane system upholding insane institutions. At, a, at some point, criminal justice must insist that the draconian traditions and beliefs of the past are outdated and must end. Realization the inherent criminal aspect of the criminal justice system is not only self-defeating, but creates a precedent where inflicting harm is an undesirable effect on society in which savagery becomes the norm, which is not uncommon in capitalist philosophy. Think about that for a moment. The ramifications are clear. As we look at the decline of the U.S. economy, when we think about the, the kind of injustices afflicted against human beings, we can only anticipate that that number will actually increase. And with that, Brother Africa, I conclude. Thank you, Brother Haki. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? Brother Moses, what's going on in your world and the community? We're having some technical issues with Brother Moses. What we're going to do right now, we're going to come back to Brother Moses. Let's go to a quick um, revolutionary culture break. And when we come back, we'll continue the discussion. What's going on in your world and the community? This is Brother Africa, and you're listening to Africa on the Move.
Don't you think you should be there? 
that do what you back to Africa on the move before we took our Revolutionary Culture break. We said we'll come back and continue the segment. What's going on in your world and the community? I would like to ask my panelists and analysts uh, to give me their reaction to uh, this narrative or situation that concerning um, the ongoing war between the Palestinians and the Zionist forces in the state of Palestine in regards to the media, in regards to the general public sentiments of should people have the right without being in being in fear or being threatened that there'll be some retributions against anyone who expressed their position or idea on what is going on at the present time in Palestine dash Israel. There seems to be a state of intimidation by the Zionist forces where they are making people either scared to speak, or if they speak, they are talking about punishing them for expressing their freedom of speech. So I'd just like to get your general sentiments in terms of that phenomenon and maybe what you think it would take to change those conditions where all people will feel freely to speak and there could be no repercussions by what you said because a certain sector of this society uh, has the power to impose their will on others. Your thoughts on that, Brother Haki? Brother Africa, Brother Africa, that's a very, very difficult uh, supposition you laid on us. Uh, you know, one of the things is that when you talk about dissemination or dis- of, of power, uh, one of the things we have to understand that designers have a tremendous amount of power in the society, and that's evident by the fact whenever someone speaks out, whether it be a student, whether it be a professional person, whether it be a, 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 a college grad, Whenever they speak out, to the extent that the designers are able to penalize them for that speech, it's been occurring in society. Now the question is, how do we, how do you put an end to that kind of that kind of abuse, you know, of 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 of, 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 of discourse? Well, brother Africa, that's a very difficult thing to do. Of course, in the context of capitalist society, one of the things when you talk about in terms of power, uh, the Supreme Court has been very clear on that, that. To the extent that you have power, you also have wealth. So if you have wealth, your ability in terms of censoring or determining who can say what becomes a reality. And so given that reality, Brother Africa, I'm not sure there's anything we can do in terms of, you know, preventing, you know, from those, you know, who have access to power and position uh, from censoring others from their uh, uh, human rights in terms of being able to articulate what they feel. I think the bottom line is that people simply have to come to the realization and listen, there may be consequences to, play, to pay in terms of speaking honestly, but nonetheless, in the long run, it's in the interest of humanity to speak honestly. Because one of the things we have to understand, when we talk about U.S. foreign policy, particularly as it relates to Israel, we understand that a lot of the things that they are doing are simply counterproductive, uh, not only in the short term, but in the long term as well. There was recently a, a State Department representative who left because he could no longer tolerate the double standard when it comes to the U.S. policy when it relates to Israel. And, of course, one of the things that he, he talked about, the fact, was that you know, that why is U.S. persistent in doing things that they know is going to come back to bite them, but they do it anyway. And he didn't no longer want to be a part of that whole process, so he decided to leave the State Department. 
So I think the bottom line is, Brother Africa, regardless of, you know, uh, the consequences, one of the things we have to be very clear on, you know, because only, we only have one life, you know, and the bottom line is that, you know, uh, if we don't address these systematic wrongs that exist in society, then one thing is very, very clear, that those systematic wrongs will come around eventually to bite us in the behind. So we have to understand that we have, if not a political, certainly a moral responsibility in terms of, you know, articulating that which we see, particularly when it comes to defining that which is right uh, as opposed to that which is wrong. So clearly, Brother Africa, you know, it's a very interesting question, but I conclude with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, your response to this phenomenon. Yes. Um, uh, Let's see. Uh, Could you repeat the question, please? Yeah, I'm just wondering your response to this climate that has been created not only in the United States but throughout the world of people feeling uh, uncomfortable or intimidating or speaking their true feelings or speaking to what they see, what they see, and what they understand to be the truth as it relates to the confrontation between the Palestinians and the Zionist forces in Palestine, i.e. the Israeli regime. How can uh, we I'm change the conditions where people could freely, truly feel free to speak to the real issues and not worry about any kind of retaliation because there's a segment where the society has enough power to impose their will on, on those who do not see things as they see them. Unfortunately, that will come about with the collapse of uh, of uh, imperialism. Uh, uh, Ashley, I'm reminded of uh, something of, um, of something that occurred during the fifties, during the era of McCarthyism, in which uh, in which people were afraid, uh, uh, you know, to speak their mind because uh, because they feared economic reprisals at that time. And, uh, and uh, it's a similar sort of thing taking place now where people are not, uh, are, are not uh, being a- a- able uh, to speak their mind honestly because uh, is sympathetic uh, towards uh, the Palestinians, and uh, and uh, you know, and as uh, a climate that's very dangerous, and uh, because it uh, stifles, uh, you know, uh, 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 people's thoughts. And uh, you know doesn't allow uh, you know um, you know the Palestinians to have uh, any say uh, in what goes on in their own land. And uh, so I, th- I I I think it's a very dangerous situation, and uh, it makes it harder uh, for. Um, uh, for, for 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 people to take stances against Zionism because of that. Thank you, Brother Anthony. And your response, Brother Moses. Do you see how yeah, um, Moses? Yeah, I'm I'm um, 
I'm sorry about that. I had a, a important phone call, and I, that's why I've been off the land. Um, but anyway, uh, the Palestinian situation is, is um, if I can get into it for about four minutes here, um, the the Old Testament, Mark said that all written history is a history of class struggle. And so the Bible is a history of class struggle. And, um, and the Old Testament and the New Testament, there's 400 years between them, 400 years between the Old Testament and the New Testament. And during that time, the, the children of Israel were dispersed and no longer were a nation by the time Jesus was born during the New Testament. And so which side are you on? Jesus said in Luke 16, 16, that the law and the prophets were until John the Baptist. Since, the, since then, the kingdom of heaven is preached. Jesus also prayed that God will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Yet many preachers today, unlike Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., are telling people to accept conditions as they are, are, ignore the world, and just keep coming to church and paying your tithes because Jesus will solve all the world's injustices when he returns. However, the Palestinian people need your help. Your tax dollars are paying to maintain the racist apartheid government of Israel. The U.S. government props up Israel with billions of dollars each year. Zionism is racism. The belief in government of Jews, by Jews, and for only Jews is Zionism. Well over 2,000 years ago, there was a Jewish kingdom. But when Jesus was born, the Jews were no longer a nation state. Some wanted to return to the good old days, but Jesus said his kingdom was not of this world. He was a revolutionary and an internationalist because he was for all people, not just Jews. Basically, he was for Jews integrating into the various nations they found themselves in. In 1948, Palestine was occupied by a well-armed group of Jews who killed and maimed to establish Israel, and that government continues to kill and displace the Palestinian people from their homeland. These Jews are not Christian and don't claim to be Christian, yet it's primarily Christian communities that support them. Either you're part of the solution or you're part of the problem. Get involved. The people of Palestine and the freedom-loving people around the world will not rest until Palestine is free. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses, for your response. And at this point in time, let's make our transition to today's topic, which is sort of a prelude um, the thing which is facts, reality, and power. These various uh, entities um, sort of reflect some of the issues and articles that we have chosen today to have a discussion around. There was an article from the recent newsletter from Telezoo, and this article is titled British Museum Facing Renewed Calls to return cultural relics. And let me just read a little something from this article. And panelists, I just would like to give you a response um, to this article. One thing is related that it has a related article where it says that Germany hands over 22 artifacts looted by colonials to Nigeria. It says that 
as the British Museum struggled to pick up the pieces amid the festering theft scandal, there have been renewed calls for the institution to return items it took from other countries. The British Museum in mid-August dismissed a staff member after items from this collection, including gold, jewelry, and gems of semi-precious metals dating as far back as the 15th century B.C. were found to be missing, stolen, or damaged. Its director resigned the following week, admitting that the museum did not respond as comprehensively as it should have in response to the warning or theft in 2021. Early this month, the former Victoria and Albert Museum, Jones, the name as the British Museum Interim Director. Panelists, when we look at this article, it raised two fundamental questions. One, if even yourself recognize it's something that don't belong to you, that it was stolen, number one. And number two, why is the British Museum are still keeping these stolen uh, relics from other countries and understanding that the same contradiction and lies they told earlier about one reason why they're keeping them, the countries don't have the capacity to keep them safe and protected, while at the same time, they don't either. So as we talk about this question of facts rather than power, start with you, Brother Haki. What are the circumstances that must take place in order to make the British Empire return all stolen goods back to their proper owners? Your response, Brother Hackey. Uh, I think, I think, in a nutshell, if, if you're going to compare the, the the authorities in the UK to return those stolen artifacts. I think it's going to take a considerable effort by the public, you know, to actually shame them into returning those those uh, those artifacts. I think one thing the article alludes to, we talk about we're, essentially what we're talking about is tremendous amount of wealth. And when you talk about tremendous amount of wealth, there is a temptation in terms of selling those things, in terms of making huge sums of money. And my biggest fear is that when you talk about in terms of a pencil, in terms of pursuing profit at all costs then certainly you got the reason that those artifacts are at danger of being sold. Uh, now, one of the things, you know, when you talk about the question in terms of security of other Africa, you know, um, you know, one of the things is that, you know, the, 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 the popular position is that, well, if they're in a Western, Western museum, then they're essentially safeguarded. Uh, of course, that, you know, it, it, it doesn't address the fundamental question in terms of, one, that the artifacts themselves were stolen, and the mere fact that they refused to even acknowledge that they were stolen, I think that is in itself problematic. But more importantly, you know, when you, when you, when you do talk about the profit motive, uh, then the question in terms of security becomes a moot, moot because what is more important, the showcasing the history of a people or uh, making profit? So I think in the context of, you know, in capitalist society, I think the, the motive in terms of making profit is more, much more promising than the, than, the, than the idea in terms of showcasing, you know, culture around the world. 
Uh, so clearly, you know, Brother Africa, the only way that's going to fundamentally stop, because it involves so much money in terms of the sale of those artifacts, it's going to take the public public pressure. And anything short of that, I don't see them unilaterally returning you know, those sort of artifacts. Uh, it, it doesn't seem to be an incentive to do so. And, of course, they understand that just in terms of, you know, mounting, you know, you know some type of uh, orchestrated effort in terms of compelling them uh, to release those artifacts to, to foreign states, they realize foreign states don't have that kind of power. So in that context, they are much, much, much likely, much less likely uh, to even acknowledge, one, that they were stolen or to acknowledge uh, uh, that uh, returning them is the proper thing to do. So clearly, Brother Africa, I think it, can, it boils down to community. If the community don't pressure them, I don't think it's going to happen. I think they'll remain there in the West, particularly in the U.K., and I'll close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Brother Anthony, um, one really important issue that came out of this article that I thought was really interesting, and I'd like for you to speak to it, and other issues that you may have, was that this question of returning these artifacts back to the rightful owner, British is claiming under ignorance and under poor management or whatever you want to say, that they have never cataloged in these important items. I find that hard to believe. Therefore, if they never cataloged them, they're claiming or they can make existence, they will never dare. Your response to this sophisticated way of keeping stolen artifacts, Brother Anthony? Um, it seems like uh, there's a certain amount of, uh, amount of incompetence on the, uh, on the forces, uh, you know, that in charge of the British Museum, if that occurred. Uh, because usually, uh, usually uh, one of the first things that's done is to catalog all the items that were, uh, uh, from, uh, you know, the, from the people that, uh, from whom they were stolen. And uh, and uh, that means that the the British do not have a good handle on what they stole, and uh, and uh, it seems like um, uh, you know the arguments that they uh, that they make against returning uh, these artifacts to their countries of origin. Are uh, you know uh, you know uh, uh, a reflection on them, and um, you know, and this is um, and this uh, 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 makes it impossible uh, to redress under the current system, and uh, so the system needs to be changed, and. Um, you know, and it's going to take organization and political pressure to bring that about. But uh, but the people who have been victimized by this have to get organized and and put uh, in in order to put the appropriate pressure on the British uh, uh, to return those goods to their homeland. Thank you, Anthony. Brother Moses, your response to the British lack of investigation, lack of um, honesty in terms of really addressing this important issue of returning these stolen artifacts back to his rightful owner. It's just a question, just 
question of just having the power and they say no one else can make them do it. Your response, Brother Moses? Well, what we are faced with a certain amount of chauvinism, um, uh, um, looking down on uh, the foreign country. Um, the British are known for this chauvinistic uh, uh, attitude. And so, you know, this this superiority complex or whatever, uh, it manifests itself in a lot of ways. And and uh, over these objects of uh, of concern, um, these various treasures that were looted from uh, different countries, uh, uh, you know, they, you know, they they're kind of beyond line. Uh, uh, and so we have to recognize uh, it's going to take political pressure uh, um, beyond um, um, just it's going to take it's going to take a mobilization uh, uh, to get them to 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 return these objects. Uh, they have no incentive to do so whatsoever, as far as I can see, and, and nothing moves them in their mind that they value. And and so, public opinion has has a value, and that's what we need to put on them. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Brother Haki, is this just one of the many lessons of looking at type of behavior of theft, as it is ingrained in the nature of the development of a of capitalism, imperialism, and seek to dominate all people at their expense when we look at the British behavior. If they steal people and then want them to free them and get them back, why would you think it would give the people um, artifacts back? But it's, again, it's just a continuation of the overall maybe philosophy of how do you think based upon, you know, the understanding that if you can do it and you have the power, then so be it. Your response, Brother Hakeem. I think you're right, Brother Africa. I think you're right. I, I think, uh, you know, when it comes down to it, it's, it's all a question of expediency. It's all about we do what we, we do because we can, and we have the power to back up what we do. So in that regard, the question in terms of fairness, uh, uh, you know, uh, becomes unimportant to, to people who hold those artifacts. I think it is um, symptomatic of a, of a much broader problem, which is namely imperialism in terms of the sort of, sort of uh, precepts would exist which says that, you know, might makes right. When you have that kind of mindset where might make right, then clearly if you have the means in terms of enforcing will by using might, then the reality is that in terms of what others have to say or the response of others to it and injustice becomes really unimportant. And this is this is fundamental problem in terms of global imperialism because you've got a situation where things are, 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 are clearly turned up down, upside down. You have a situation where wrong is right, uh, you know, um, a situation where, you know, war is peace. You have all of these these, these, these these ironies that exist in life. And yet when you talk about positions of power in the West, their position is that everything they do is justifiable no matter how bizarre the rationale may be. So when you're dealing with people in terms of that kind of rationale that, you know, we take what we want because we can force it through, through might. Uh, then the bottom line is that when you talk about the possibility of discourse and sitting down and actually discussing, 
you know, the marriage in terms of returning those stolen artifacts, uh, it falls on deaf ears. And that's a whole, that's, that's a problem. I think one of the things when we talk about in terms of being about definitive change in the, in the world, one of the things that we don't fundamentally address that systematic imbalance in terms of you know, those with, with might and those who don't have might, if we don't fundamentally address that, that systemic imbalance, then the bottom line is that those in the West with the power are continue to use it to their benefit, which means that those who don't have access to, 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 to power have to work together in terms of elevating or creating that power they need to confront those powers of the West that, that dominates and controls, you know, every aspect of their existence. Uh, so clearly, Brother Africa, I think this is part impossible of a, of a peerless mindset. And, and the bottom line is that, and this is clear, I'm, I'm clear on this point, that when you start talking about, you know, when you start talking about, you know, discerning what is right and what is wrong, uh, when you deal with a system which simply says that, you know, all things are expedient, that, that all these things can always be justified, no matter how horrible, then the bottom line is that um, unless uh, you're willing to take a stand and confront those injustices uh, on, on all levels, the bottom line is that the kind of um, injustice that you're confronted with are not going to disappear. They're going to actually elevate. And this is a problem in terms of privileged world order. So to answer your question, Brother Africa, you know, I agree, you know, that uh, one of the things that when we talk about in terms of propensity, in terms of doing what you, what you want to do at the expense of others, is the direct resort of what they perceive as their, their, their self-empowerment. In other words, they have the power to do what they want, when they want, and there's nothing you can do to stop them. And I'll close with that. You know, Brother Anthony, let's continue down the path that Brother Haki just alluded to. I'm just wondering, when we look at the British Empire and the system that they played a major role in developing uh, capitalism and now expansion imperialism, they seem to have a set of Ten Commandments. And some of the rules in their Ten, ten Commandments seem to be there should lie, there should cheat, and there should steal. Not only we talk about do, they doing artifacts, but we also can see the role that they have played in this confusion that's going on in Palestine in terms of trying to steal, take, and cheat the Palestinian people out of, out of their own homeland. So I'm just wondering, is this a part of their principle, core principles, a lying, cheating, and stealing? This is just a continuation. No response, Brother Anthony? Uh, I think you're correct, Brother Africa. Uh, It is a continuation of, um, uh, you know, the lying, stealing, and uh, uh, of people's resources that uh, that made the British Empire possible in the first place, and uh, this uh, uh, and uh, what's going on in these museums in these imperialist countries are uh, are continuations of that. And uh, the only way the only way it's going to be addressed. Is that uh, is people have to organize in order to defeat imperialism, and uh, and uh, and uh, you know uh, uh, get uh, you know get their uh, uh, hard hard produced goods back through reparations. Uh, but uh, you know reparations. As sister shown, can only be uh, obtained from a defeated enemy. 
So uh, we have to organize uh, uh, to defeat imperialism. That's the only way it's going to be done. You know, Brother Moses, I thought it was interesting that even though the government of Greece is asking for some of their relics to be returned back. And I just, that's interesting in terms of looking at the behavior even in among the European community. They lie and cheat among themselves. Just your general response to that phenomenon, Brother Moses. Well, these, these, these artifacts are, are just trophies of conquest. I mean, they, they're trophies, um, and little reminders of the different conquests they've made. And, uh, and uh, you know, it's a testimony to the, to the empire and the power of the empire. And uh, so they're on display for people to come and visit and and, and all and uh, and be uh, inspired or whatever by these uh, artifacts. Uh, but that's what they are. They're just trophies of of a conquest uh, that they've gathered over the years. Thank you. You know, Brother Hackey, one of the things I was thinking about is around this concept, they say you judge a person based upon or you identify a person or a people or a government by what they do and not necessarily what they say. Now, if you look at what they do, I'm just trying to figure out, if you look at Western narrative, they would have you believe that all the things that come from indigenous people, things that come out of Africa, has no value and less than and not worthy to, 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 to do anything with. So therefore, why are they stealing indigenous people? Why are they stealing uh, artifacts from Africa and other people culture history around the world if they see them less than and their creativity and culture are less than theirs? I don't get it. What's the value there? Seems like that's a contradiction. Do they really believe in what they say, Brother Haki? <laughs> Brother Africa, you know, the, the deception, there's a long history of deception in the West. The West has engaged in deception because they engage in truth in terms of, you know, how the world is organized, how the world exists. Uh, they have to concur, you know, that, uh, you know, they're not superior as they think they are. They have to conclude, you know, that when you talk about the origin of those, those disciplines that are important to human civilization, weren't innovated by them. They have to conclude that uh, their very origin goes back to very dark people, uh, African people. Those things they cannot acknowledge. And so as a consequence, you see these kind of, this kind of hypocrisy that constantly plays itself out in terms of, in terms of you know, uh, how the West perceives itself. And often when they, when they employ these attempts at deception in terms of deflecting reality or making people think, believe one thing when reality something else is actually what's occurring. This is something that serves the interests of the West. And, and keep in mind, they have to do that. Because, you know, one of the things that when we talk about the changes that are taking place around the planet, and people increasingly are beginning to understand their contributions to humanity, they're beginning to understand their contributions in terms of, uh, in, in, in terms of uh, a more just harmonious world. When they come to that realization, then clearly when you talk about a system that's diametrically opposed, to the interests of the majority of people, such, an, such a realization, you know, that people, ancient people, 
you know, I have something to say in terms of how society should be organized. When they make that claim, and you got to understand, those in the West see it as, a, as an intrinsic threat. They don't see it as, as a positive. They see it as a threat. And so what happens is that as opposed to acknowledging what, the, what, the, what, these, what these ancient people are saying, the thing is a, it's a downplay what they have to say and to, to imply that somehow that they're not fit, they're not civilized, or they're not as capable as us, blah, 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 blah. But all that is, all that is self-deception. But that is part of the game. That's part of the psychological game. And keep in mind, it doesn't matter whether you're conservative, liberal, it doesn't matter. That kind of mindset exists in the West generally. And this is why it's so difficult in terms of bringing about definitive change, because a lot of times that perception of superiority exists in the minds of people who refuses to look at the reality of the situation. In order for them to look at the reality of the situation, they have to confront history. So when you talk about bringing, old, bringing artifacts you know, to the West to be viewed, it's an acknowledgment that, in fact, those things are not only beautiful, but they're making, but they're making a statement. And that statement resonates with those in the West. As opposed to the West simply saying, listen, this, 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 these artifacts speaks to me. They have something to say. You know, I love, you know, I, I love what, they, what, the, what they symbolize. Rather than say that, they attack it somehow as being inferior art, but yet at the same token, you want to bring more and more of these artifacts into the West to showcase. So, again, it's that, that hypocrisy is the mind of the West which is why bringing about definitive change, positive change in the world, is so difficult to achieve because unless the West is willing to confront, you know, this kind of hypocrisy, the bottom line is that they, 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 they persist in playing this game in terms of deflecting in which you blame others for, for the same defects that you have. You turn around and blame others for having similar kinds of, similar kind of defects. So, in other words, there's the tendency to displace, uh, you know, uh, uh, you know, uh, to say that, or this tendency to project, to say that you're bad, we're good, you know, your art is primitive, our art is sophisticated, uh, what you stand for is naive, what we, what, we, what, we, what we stand for is complex. So the tendency to do that in the West is not going anywhere until people in the West themselves begin to understand that all of this nonsense that they perceive as legitimate or they perceive as just and right, until they come to the realization that it's all fabricated, it's all BS, the bottom line is they embrace a lot of these, these, these understandings of the world, and in, in embracing these understandings of the world, it reflects in the kind of behavior that they assume in terms of the interaction with other peoples throughout the world. So clearly, Brother Africa, you're, you're absolutely correct. The hypocrisy is astounding in terms of when, you, when I look at that, I have to smile because I'm, I'm always amazed that you, know, you will say all these horrible things about, you know, about, about people, specifically African people, but then when it comes to, to African creations, and, and as opposed to embracing the beauty of those African creations, because of the reflection of human beings across the board, irrespective of skin color, rather than to embrace that, you, you want to say that it somehow is not the, quite up to par, but it's okay, you know, for us to, to, to showcase it simply because, quote-unquote, it's different than what we assume art should be. Also, clearly, Brother Africa, you're absolutely correct. This kind of projection is something that's been with the West for a long time, and the bottom line is unless unless – West comes to face to face with its tendency to project the bottom line that these injustices, the stealing of artifacts, none of the stuff is going anywhere until the West itself take a deep, hard, introspective look at itself in terms of the kind of behaviors that manifest, you know, coming out of the West. With that, Brother Africa, I'll close. You know, Brother Anthony, um, I, I found really interesting, interesting in terms of 
you know, this whole saying, they say that while they get paid, we are getting played. Well, how big it make us hate ourselves and not see ourselves. And then at the other moment, they make us go and paint and see ourselves. For example, when you go to these museums, they ain't talking about all of these African artifacts from Africa around the world. They have you paying to see yourself. Now, they talk about returning the artifacts back. Should they also return or be held accountable for all the money they have made of displaying or artifacts back to the countries? Your response to that, Brother Anthony? Uh, n- uh, n- uh, uh, y- uh, I-, I think you, m- you make a good point, uh, Brother Africa. Uh, they do not. They do not uh, intend to return the profits they made off of uh, you know exploiting our resources, and uh, and um, this is another form. Uh, this uh, 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 keeping of African art- artifacts in in uh, in, uh, in European museums. Is a uh, is another form of uh, of uh, of a theft of our resources or exploitation of our resources to benefit Europeans and uh, and uh, let's see and uh, uh, let's see the only thing uh, that these uh, Europeans uh, the the European bourgeoisie understands is pressure. And uh, they have to be pressured in order uh, to repay what they uh, what they stole out of Africa. And uh, and uh, we ha- uh, and we have to get organized to do that. And uh, and uh, and this is where Pan Africanism comes into play. Because a unified socialist Africa can uh, can make demands of uh, of these uh, uh, you know imperialist forces that uh, that these uh, that these uh, African countries uh, these fifty four African countries can possibly demand because they're too small. And they don't control any, uh, uh, you know, uh, they're not control of our own resources. But a unified socialist Africa with control of our own resources can make those demands. Panelists, in closing out on this particular article, as released their theme, Facts, Reality, and Power. Are there anything else you would like to add to this discussion that you may have that you may have not had the opportunity to um, share with our listening audience? I start with you, Brother Moses. Anything additional you'd like to say in reference to this article and this issue of European countries stealing people um, artifacts and not returning them? Brother Moses, any additional thoughts? Well, I, I just think you know, you know that. Um, Reparations are in order. I mean, from the profits, as you said, the profits that are driven off of them. Uh, there's 
um, the, just the, this full disclosure of of uh, how they came to, to be in possession of these artifacts. Um, you know, because that, like I said, is a history of conquest, and there's a story behind 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 these objects of of uh, the booty of the the raid on the African continent uh, and the, the spoils of the of the battle. Anyway, I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Anthony, any final thoughts you'd like to share with our listening audience that you may have not been given a chance to say so? Uh, yes. Uh, let's see. Uh, uh, these, uh, these artifacts, uh, cultural artifacts that are in European museums are the result of, the, uh, of uh, imperialist con- conquests. They are uh, they are the results of the effects of capitalism, and uh, and uh, and uh, we uh, and uh, they should be in our possession for us to do uh, to do as we wish with them, and uh, this is another exploit uh, form of exploitation of our labor and resources. And uh, we can only, uh, and only permanent organization can address that. Thank you, Brother Anthony. Any final thoughts that you'd like to share on this article, Brother Hacking, in terms of <coughs> something they have not been given a chance to um, think about, share with our listening audience? Any additional thoughts you'd like to share with our listening audience on this particular? Yeah. Well, my only additional thought is that, listen, it's very, very simple. Give back that what you stole. I don't understand the um, what's, what are the benefits in terms of, you know, stealing, you know, maintaining, you know, stolen artifacts. You know, it seems to me that it, it makes a very poor statement in terms of who you are to actually set upon, you know, stolen items and to be proud that you set on top of, you know, items that were stolen. So it seems to me on a very basic level, just return the artifacts, you know, ex, you know, uh, you know, explain, you know, listen, if, you know, apologize. Well, you don't even have to apologize. Just return the stolen artifacts, you know, and don't repeat this kind of behavior. That's what I would like to see. And it's not very difficult to do. All it takes is to acknowledge that the, that the artifacts were, in fact, stolen. Once they acknowledge the artifacts were stolen, it should be a simple, simple, uh, a, a simple, uh, a, a, a simple read. In other words, it should be as, as, as so easy in terms of just returning those artifacts to the to the originators, to the people who they belong to, and it's that simple. And I close with that. Thank you, Brother Hackey. Uh, one of the things I came to uh, realize is that part of maybe a direction of keeping my artifacts is also based upon the issue of we not way people not knowing our history. These artifacts it does represent a history of a certain aspect of a history of a people and the struggle of the people. So again, in terms of the importance of understanding our history and what we are, who we are, that become a component in which, you know, this plays a role of denying us access to our own history. So anyway, you know, more I think about this and look at this, I'm just wondering when we talk about 
these concepts of lying, cheating, and stealing, these are not tactical behaviors by or actions by these forces, but they seem to be ingrained in them as a form of a principle. This is what they have displayed throughout the world. And um, so when you're dealing with people who fight based on based upon that principle, it's a lot more difficult to engage them versus one who may be doing something tactically. So anyway, let's just do this right now as we discuss the things, facts, reality, and power. We're going to take a quick uh, culture break and when we come back. We will continue this discussion as we talk about Cecil Rose, his image. We're going to talk about the Rose Trust, Tracy's criticism as a slavery talk out of Oxford University. This is Africa on the Moon. We'll be right back. Scholars and scientists now concede that Africa is the birthplace of mankind. Africans were the first builders of civilization. They discovered mathematics, invented writing, developed sciences, engineering, medicine, religion, fine arts, and built the Great Pyramids, an architectural achievement which still baffles modern science. The 225th Emperor, Emperor, direct descent from Solomon and the Queen of Sheba, Sheba, Sheba. He is the King of Kings, the Lion of Judah. Just what you were 
Thank you, Mama, for the nine months you're carrying me through. 
uh, vote in the United Nations General Assembly, which I think your viewers are probably aware, but many people may not be aware. It takes place every year when the entire United Nations gets together, uh, all the member states and governments and, you know, allies of the United States, opponents of the United States, the whole gamut, and they all come together every year. This is the 31st straight year uh, to vote overwhelmingly against the, uh, the blockade uh, uh, of United States policy. The actual wording is the necessity to end the uh, United States uh, economic, commercial, and financial embargo against Cuba. And the whole world unites uh, around that and ending the sanctions. And, and uh, uh, we're having demonstrations all across the United States and Canada and in the Western Hemisphere and around the world um, uh, before that vote, during that vote, many of us will be going inside, looking at it, observing the whole world, getting up and speaking. And this is generally suppressed in the in our uh, the news of this in our uh, so-called free press in the United States. I'll, I'll I could go on and on, but yes. And the 28th in New York City. If you're all coming down, uh, if you're uh, going to be around New York or have your own action. Uh, in Richmond and other cities, uh, we will be protesting in Times Square, uh, 42nd and Broadway, 47th and Broadway, uh, and then we're going to march over to Grand Central Station and have a rally at a very nice plaza with speakers, and we're going to be protesting, showing that the world, that the United States people stand with the world, that the working people of the United States, young people. Uh, uh, are with Cuba and stand with Cuba, and that's reflected in all the cities and states and trade unions and everywhere that have passed resolutions against this horrible, brutal blockade. Historically, Brother I can you just give us a brief history of what the Cuba Sea Organization does and why it's ah. important to really make Cuba an issue inside the United States? Some people want to know what is the connection in terms of how would it benefit their community. So can you just sure. speak to those Thank factors? you. Thank you. Um, well, the Cuba Sea, New York, New Jersey Cuba Sea Coalition um, has been around uh, with different names and many forms as part of the uh, longstanding in New York and New Jersey area. Uh, solidarity organizations going back decades, really, because all these years the UN didn't vote against the blockade. We've been organizing and people have been organizing. We're part of the National Network on Cuba, part of the U.S.-Cuba Normalization Conference that has organized activities. Uh, we organized demonstrations. But we're basically a coalition, Cuba-focused, um, that uh, – uh, um, you know, organ, unites individual activists and organizations to fight. But we also reach out and participate in other people's struggles and actions and anti-war activities and labor struggles and bring the message of Cuba to them um, and to bring their organizations into struggle. Now, in terms of um, uh, the second part of your question was? Why the focus of Cuba? Why Cuba is so important? 
to people who well, are outside okay, yeah. of the United uh, States and their communities. Right. I think that uh, that many people uh, that are involved in struggles that, as I was starting to say, whether it's uh, labor struggles, uh, struggles against police killings and brutality, uh, struggles for black rights, you find there's a Cuban connection there. You find that in the history of our struggles, we find that, for example, in the uh, cause of African liberation and awareness that I know is so so uh, central to to your out thinking and and your heart, uh, that we see that Cuba connection, and that's important when we see the decisive role that Cuba uh, uh, took during in the liberation struggles in Southern Africa uh, that led to the defeat of a part of the apartheid state in South Africa, a world historic event that laid the basis for the elevation of Africa and the Caribbean. So that's one example. But everything, uh, fights for women's rights uh, in the recent period, uh, for gay rights, labor struggles, connections that we make. Uh, I've felt this personally, uh, and I've been to Cuba many times and organized delegations, that that uh, this is a very important for us to learn because Cuba tells us not only what we're fighting against, all the struggles that we have to fight and, and defend ourselves in capitalist America, but it also tells us what we're for. It's an alternative. I know you've been to Cuba a number of times, uh, Lee, and many of your listeners maybe. When you go there, you see, despite the hardship and everything that has uh, uh, especially intensified, really, in the last period as the U.S. blockade has deepened under Biden and Trump, uh, but still you see the uh, seeds of a new society, the type of uh, new woman and man that that can be forged through uh, through struggle. You know, Brother Ike, um, in terms of the impact of the blockade, how does it impact the Cubans inside the Cubans, and how does it have an impact on the people inside the United States? Can you talk a little bit about well, that? Uh, it, well, one way it's impacted is that <laughs> – there's been a tremendous rise in uh, immigration. That's one of the things that the, the consequences of the blockade, not only in Cuba, but uh, in Central America, in Venezuela, but in Cuba in particular. Um, but the impact of the blockade inside Cuba, it's almost like we're seeing uh, a, the war uh, uh, in Gaza today and the the bombs dropping, we've seen the horrific brutality of the Russian Federation, Ukraine war, thousands dead, bombs dropping. These are wars with bombs. The United States long ago, they tried that in Cuba. It didn't work. They tried mercenaries. They have settled on a policy that you have to call asphyxiation. They're not dropping bombs on Cuba right now. They're trying to lay the conditions in my opinion, by just strangling Cuba and creating such economic hardship and suffering. And they're succeeding in that, by the way, in terms of what's happening in Cuba today, that in doing that, they, they can lay the conditions for, uh, for some kind of more direct and maybe military intervention. But in the meantime, they are causing such 
disruption with the intensification of the blockade. They don't have to drop bombs. And this is a continuity between Trump and Biden. Uh, Biden did not, despite his promises, go back to the policies that were forced on Obama when he retreated and adjusted U.S. policy and began some normalization and some uh, 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 easing of the uh, of the brutality to come of the blockade without ending it, by the way. But Biden and then Trump reversed what what Obama had done and uh, and initiated hundreds of new measures that really, really hurt. And then with the pandemic, in the conditions of COVID, and then uh, Biden was elected uh, and uh, uh, continued the same policy. And it's really, uh, it shook a lot of people up when they saw that despite his promises, but that's where we're at right now. So despite the isolation of the policy around the world, despite the fact that it has gotten no traction in the hemisphere or internationally, and we'll see that again in this UN vote. It still continues, and it's causing great uh, distress and suffering uh, to the Cuban uh, uh, people. Man, it's a, it's a real crime. Well, like we know, one of the ways the Cubans say you're going to be in solidarity with them is to fight for end to the blockade. They also are asking for the people's support to put an end of them being on the U.S. sponsored state terrorist list and to return Guantanamo land base back to them. Can you speak on those two issues? The terrorist list yes, and the I'm, land base I'm, of Guantanamo. I'm, thank you for uh, uh, saying that because that's really where we're at. Because the SSOT has become the crux. It's an easy, that's the state sponsors a terrorism list, which is a phony baloney list that the State Department puts together. They have no evidence that Cuba's playing a peace role. They played a peace role in, in Colombia. They're trying to play a peace role and get a ceasefire uh, and humanitarian aid uh, uh, in Gaza right now and to, uh, to the Palestinians. Uh, it's outrageous to call them terrorists, but it's like a political tool. And really, this is something Biden could sign it tomorrow. It was put on, the Cuba was taken off the list by uh, President Obama, and that was, uh, that was one of the major uh, concessions that were made to lay the basis for the restoration of diplomatic relations, along with freeing the, Cuba, the, the remaining Cuban five prisoners. But uh, 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 Trump put them back on in the very last days of the of his administration, and then Biden kept them on and said he wasn't going to take them off. Uh, and this causes tremendous. This kicks in motion almost like a an analog rhythm in a computer. It kicks into motion. Uh, uh, tremendous problems for Cuba to carry out economic and financial, normal economic and financial transactions that can then, uh, you know, and companies and countries and economic entities can use that as a, as a pretext and a reason why they're not going to invest in Cuba, which definitely need, uh, uh, needs investment, especially since the pandemic and it deters tourists from going. It's, it's a it's a mechanism by which Cuba can be 
asphyxiated uh, that policy without having to to drop the bombs. Uh, and uh, and it's uh, it's 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 something that it's uh, that Biden uh, has said he's not going to do. So that's the pressure. You can't just end the blockade easily or through an executive order. You could do that until Clinton uh, signed the Helms-Burton into law, which requires an act of Congress, which just technically and legally, I mean, the main thing is me and you know, Lee and other people know that we really have to build a mass movement to force them to change. But right now, they are under a lot of pressure. They are isolated. So we have to step up the pressure, but really the the key is the SSOT and taking Cuba off that list because, and that's what we've been focusing our our demands on, and a lot of people have spoken on that, and we'll speak on that at the United Nations. What we're going to do right now, we're going to take a rubbish culture break, and when we come back, we got our political panelists and analysts. We're going to open up the microphones where they have some questions and we'll make some statements as we discuss the issue of Cuba and the lifting of the blockade and all the other stuff that needs to be done to bring about a better humanity for all men and women. So we're going to be right back. We're going to pause for the call. This is Brother Africa on Africa on the Moon, and we'll be right back. Thank you.
se la pasa Yo soy un hombre sincero ¿De dónde crece la palma? Y antes de morir me quiero Echar mis versos del alma
We'd like to welcome you back to Africa on the Move. Africa on the Move is a community project under the banner of the African Awareness Association. You can catch this radio program every Sunday evening at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time, U.S. It's an international Pan-African program that comes to speak to the powerful and the powerless. We may not get the people what they want, but we're doing our best to give them what they need. And right now, we with our special guest, Brother Ike Mayhem. He's an organizer for the Cuba Sea, as well as a member of the National Network on Cuba. We're talking about the upcoming events around Cuba and the U.N. vote that will take place every year as it relates to lifting Cuba or getting rid of the U.S. blockade against Cuba. So at this point in time, if you'd like to know more about this radio station and like to be a supporter, you can do that by making a contribution to Cash App, dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e, <laughs> excuse me, small c, small r, small o, small b. <laughs> At the same time, all comments and questions can be sent to Africa on the move to at gmail.com. So right there, we go back to our guest, Brother Ike. And we'll open up our mic to our political panelists and us for any questions or comments. Right now, we're bringing Brother Ike. Brother Ike, the mic, the mic is yours. Yeah, I have a rather fundamental question, and that is, you know, one of the things that when we think about Cuba-U.S. relations, Cuba never did anything to the United States. So my question to you is that what is the definitive reason for U.S. aggression toward Cuba? What precisely is it? Can you repeat the question to Brother Ike? Repeat the question? Okay, yeah. Well, Cuba's never done anything to the U.S. So what is, in, in, your, in your estimation, what is the specific reasons for U.S. Uh, aggression toward Cuba? What do you think it really is? Okay, can you hear us? For some reason, we have some... Communication problems with Brother Ike. I don't know why, because our board is seems to be functioning. So uh, what we're going to do is. All right, I think maybe it's minutes. better now. Is this yes, better? Yes, Ike. I'm so sorry. I think I inadvertently was on mute. I got the question. I would say what Cuba. Uh, the brother says, what has Cuba done to the United States to deserve this aggression? Uh, And the answer to that is what Cuba has done is the example of its revolution and the and the resonance of it uh, across the Americas since the Cuban Revolution. Uh, uh, Every what Cuba has done, it has not obviously it has not done anything to the United States in terms of putting a blockade on it or sending people to invade it or carrying out terrorism against the United States or anything like that. Uh, it's certainly not an economic threat. It's not a financial threat. It's ludicrous to even pose that. The United States is 330 million people. Cuba is 11 million people. But uh, Cuba has a powerful example 
the Cuban Revolution was a powerful example across the Americas and in the United States, especially in uh, the uh, black community and in the uh, black struggle that was picking up big steam at that time uh, and was influenced by the Cuban Revolution and also influenced the Cuban Revolution. It's not an accident that in the early years of the Cuban Revolution, when Malcolm X met with Fidel at the Teresa Hotel and then uh, the Fair Play for Cuba Committee, that many of the first people that spoke out in defense of Cuba, because Cuba had passed legislation five years before the United States uh, abolishing Jim Crow segregation in the United States. So that's just one example. So all of those examples, especially in Latin America, uh, resonated. So that's what Cuba has done uh, to the United States, and that's the reason. And to this day, even in the most recent uh, uh, pandemic and and, uh, uh, you know, the Cuban example with medical doctors when they were the ones that helped lead the way to conquering uh, Ebola uh, in West Africa in the 2013-14 uh, period, medical internationalism, uh, all of these questions. So it's really political. Uh, it's political and the bitterness and resentment of the former ruling classes in Cuba, uh, the hatred that they have, the Marco Rubios, the, the Robert Menendez, these people. But they're a cover for the policy. The Democrats and Republicans may disagree on how they implement the policy, but they agree on the policy goal, which is ending uh, the Cuban Revolution, defeating it, and uh, blockading it. So that's a long answer to a very good short question. One additional additional question, and I'll I'll, I'll conclude with this question. Now, what is your understanding in terms of potential status in terms of trade between China, Russia, and Cuba? Is that ongoing? That's an ongoing process, or what is your understanding of that potential? Well, there has been some uh, that has helped make up for the effect of the blockade uh, uh, in in terms of both donations and uh, I think like for example when uh, when the during the worst of the pandemic Cuba had did not have its own ventilators so they had to buy ventilators on the world market and because the, the ventilators had a percentage component of the uh uh uh, of U.S. products, so it was subject to the uh, terms of the blockade. So uh, they ended up making their own through amazing uh, innovation. But they did get some from China and some from Russia. They've gotten some donations. There's been some uh, emergency shipments of vegetable oil. There's been some trade. But these are not Cuba's uh, uh, best markets. Uh, it's been significant and they have increased especially with China their trade uh, but they're long far away they have to pay a lot of costs um, for shipping and stuff like that Uh, and again you know the pressure it's a way for them to somewhat circumvent and they're really trying they have trade missions all over the world Uh, but you know the average capitalist or even investor, you know, whatever, however you want to characterize 
Russian and Chinese businesses that might invent or invest or state sectors, uh, whatever uh, they have to weigh, uh, they have to weigh the the access that they would lose to the giant U.S. market of 330 million and and still the largest component of the whole world capitalist market and and so on despite you know some of the shifts and things but that's still compared to 11 million from cuba so uh, an entity a capitalist that might want to invest or or make some money which they could make some profit in in cuba uh and cuba desperately needs investment to modernize and update its technology and everything that those uh uh, those forces uh, are going to be very reluctant to give up uh, their uh, to, to stick their neck out for Cuba, um, and so that's a problem. Uh, and uh, Cuba's desperately trying to counter that, uh, not desperately, but they're since uh, hard, trying very with difficulty to overcome that, and and uh, that's uh, where we're at right now. Thank you, Brother Haki. We can move now to Brother Anthony. Brother Anthony, the mic is yours. Uh, certainly. Uh, Ralph Lewis and I are greetings to you, uh, uh, Brother Ike. How are you? I'm fine. It's nice to hear your voice, Anthony. How are you doing, brother? I'm okay. Um, let's see. I um, uh, Let's see. I, I, I have a uh, I want to uh, shift directions a bit. Um, the, uh, Cuba, throughout its revolution, has always expressed uh, solidarity with uh, with peoples that are fighting against the same uh, same set of enemies. In other words, all manifestations of imperialism. And um, when uh, when I want to ask you uh, uh, about its uh, its relationship to Palestine and uh, its stand against uh, pal- uh, you know with uh, the Palestinians and against Zionism, uh, could you well, speak to that briefly? Sure. Thank you so much for that question because that's something that's on. Everybody's mind, uh, Palestine, Israel, the horrible situation in Gaza, and really what has unfolded since the uh, uh, attacks uh, on uh, October 7th. So uh, Cuba, as always on international questions, has uh, spoken out, uh, has uh, emphasized its solidarity with the struggle of the Palestinian people for self-determination. and uh, they played a leadership role in the world as they have historically uh, been in solidarity with Palestine. But at the same time, uh, they have uh, uh, taken uh, very forthright positions and statements that they've, that they've made, official statements, uh, to also state forthrightly that they are looking, uh, that they have kept take the moral high ground and have definitely uh, come out against clearly any attacks on civilians and, and uh, uh, those kind of things and have called for 
a solution, a ceasefire for humanitarian aid to Gaza to stop the Israeli bombardments, which have, I think the, the latest numbers are some three, 4,000 innocent, dead Palestinian civilians that has uh, now uh, doubled or tripled the initial 1,300, 1,400 uh, innocent, uh, defenseless uh, Israeli civilians, not all of whom were Jews that were killed in the initial Hamas attack. So they've been very clear in, in opposing that and supporting the struggle for a uh, independent, sovereign, contiguous uh, Palestinian state uh, along the lines of uh, uh, UN 242 uh, with East Jerusalem as the capital. They believe, and they've been very forthright in saying that they think this is the only uh, realistic uh, and and politically uh, uh, useful way to advance the uh, Palestinian struggle. Now, different people have different views on that and a lot of different slogans. And and right now, many people are focused on the immediate horrible situation with the Israeli bombardment and uh, and the uh, uh, the need for a ceasefire and for a humanitarian aid to be increased because it's devastating what's happening. So uh, uh, that's what we've been doing. Cuba C, which is Cuba focused, uh, we don't really take a position necessarily on a lot of these uh, questions. We try to focus on Cuba, but uh, what we have been doing, and it's really uh, we've been promoting, publicizing printing online, putting on our website, which, by the way, if I can slip in for your uh, viewers uh, to get more information on all of this and see these uh, postings, it's uh, us-cubanormalization.org or uh, coalition.org uh, uh, and you can... Uh, get more information. So I hope I uh, answered your question a little bit, Anthony. You did. Thank you. Next, we'll go to Brother Moses. Any questions or comments from you, Brother Moses? The mic is yours. Greetings. Yes, Greetings, my brother. Uh, um, Cuba C is... Um, Progressive organization, obviously, uh, doing great things uh, for a great people, and uh, I appreciate your work. And uh, we certainly in D.C. stand in solidarity with the Cuban Revolution and and uh, try to do things to promote the solidarity of the, of the international working class. And um, anyway, I just keep up the good work. Thank you. Well, thank you. Those were very uh, kind words, and, and uh, I know that they come out of a common struggle together, and uh, I appreciate the work you do as well in D.C. You know, Brother Ike, I'm going to ask you to respond to this particular question, and then you can make a closing remarks uh, for tonight. But I think one of the threats that Cuba posed to U.S. And Western nations is that it gives the people another alternative 
or how to organize their society. They are not apologetic for choosing the path of socialism and revolution. I think that's what scared the West the most because they try to make people believe there are not other ways or another alternative to create a society where men and men and women don't have to be so exploitative toward each other. Your response to that and just give us your final take on upcoming activities and how they can support y'all. The mic is yours. Thank you. Well, uh, those are beautiful words, and I subscribe to them, and uh, I don't know if I can improve on them, but uh, uh, the, the, the key is to win people over to get the truth out, as always, and sooner or later, uh, uh, we will make breakthroughs, as Cuba is making breakthroughs uh, with, their, uh, with the fight against the blockade. So please come to uh, or have in your area... Uh, I know in the Richmond area and D.C., they'll probably be having activities around the U.N. vote. Or if you're in the New York area and you hear this, uh, come out 12 noon uh, on the 28th. Uh, follow what's going on and follow the Cuba Solidarity Movement because it's a growing movement. It's, it's resonating with a lot of different people that may have different opinions on all kinds of other questions. But as long as we can unite uh, around Cuba and keep the pressure on Biden, uh, then I think we can uh, we can really uh, do some great stuff. And Mike, leave an email, phone number, website, and how to get in touch with your organization. Right. Okay. Uh, it's uh, uh, well, I'll give you a phone number you can call uh, 917-887-8710. Our uh, website, again, is us-cubanormalization, one word. So us-cubanormalization.org. Uh, or you can just Google in Cuba uh, uh, C, New York, New Jersey, or uh, U.S. Cuba Normalization Committee, and it'll come up. Uh, and uh, there you can sign up, get our mailings, get active in your area, and uh, really uh, join a, a really vibrant movement that's finally drawing some young people that are doing the work. And on that note, Brother, I'd like to thank you, the listening audience. This is Mike Mayhem. He's an organizer for the Cuba C organization as well as a member of the National Network on Cuba. If you're up in the New York area on the weekend of the twenty eighth, um join in, check out the activities and like always, let's do all that we can to support Cuba and try to find a way to put an end to this blockade, to get them off the US terminus and to give Guantanamo Bay back to them. So on that note we'd like to thank Ike, his organization, and all those who have continued to stand in solidarity with Cuba, the Cuban people, and their revolution. So right now, this is Africa on the Moon. We're going to take a quick revolutionary culture break, and when we come back, we're going to do our final thoughts on today's program, which is part one of a two-part series, Facts, Reality, and Power. We'll be right back, our brother Africa, and you're listening to Africa on the Moon. Oh, 
Palestine, 
People there have lost their land. Some have lost their home. They live in other countries. Their freedom almost gone. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Needs her freedom. Palestine, Palestine. Needs, our needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine. needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. There seems to be no answer to give us the reason why people cannot live so no one has to die. We've got to take a stand for freedom, take a stand for truth. Take a stand for justice, that's what we've got to do. Cause Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Needs freedom. Palestine, Palestine needs our love. Needs our love. Palestine, Palestine needs her freedom. Palestine needs our love. We'd like to welcome you back to the first part of a two-part series, Facts, Reality, and Power. We're going to be closing out our program today by asking each one of our panelists and analysts to give us their final thoughts for the night. We'll start with you, Brother Moses. Your final thoughts for the night. I thank you, Lord, Brother Moses. So we're going to Brother Anthony. Your final thoughts for the night. My uh, final thought for tonight is that uh, the solution uh, to our uh, to our, our problems is Pan Africanism, the total liberation and unification of Africa under scientific socialism. It is only when we unite and organize can we defeat uh, uh, the enemies of Africa. And uh, you can find out more about our organization by visiting our website, www.a-aprp-gc.org. And uh, you can find out more about our objective history and our, our, our current work uh, on, the, on that website, as well as how to get in touch with us. Thank you, Brother Anthony, for your contribution to today's program. I think we have Brother Moses back. We're going to come back in. Brother Moses, your final thoughts for tonight. Yeah, it's been an interesting show. I think Brother Anthony has nail on the head. We need to be organized. We need um, organization as much as possible, and we need to uh, be clear on our objectives. And uh, that's an injustice anywhere; it's a injustice everywhere. And so, so you know, uh, if the Palestinians are hurting, we should feel the pain. And I'll leave it right there. Thank you. Thank you, Brother Moses. Good night to you and Brother Aki from the African Women's Association. Your final thoughts for tonight. Brother Haki, 
Well, Brother Africa, you know, we talk about the challenges that uh, that people face in the society. But one of the things we talk about is challenges. We have to keep in mind the growing decline of capitalism. You know, recently it was reported that uh, the wealthy people in U.S. society uh, avoided paying taxes to the tune of $688 billion. And what's ironic about this, when we talk about, you know, not paying your taxes, these uh, not paying your taxes were accompanied by the fact that these same wealthy individuals received large tax breaks from the government. Now, this problem was compounded by the fact that the Federal Reserve increasingly has been buying you know, bonds uh, from the Treasury Department. So when the Federal Reserve buys those bonds for the tre- Treasury Department, it has a tendency of actually increasing the money supply in circulation. That money in, in, in circulation doesn't go to the real economy. It doesn't go to working people. It goes to the wealthy. The wealthy, in turn, take that money and they buy all kind. They, got, they buy all kind of uh, all kind of assets, you know, in which they can they can make themselves wealthy, fabulously wealthy. Uh, but here's the problem, you know, uh, you know when you know when we talk about in terms of you know uh, you, you know these money being allocated to the wealthy people, we got to keep in mind the impact it has on the real economy. In particular, you know, when the, when they when they when they, when, they, when the Federal Reserve buys those, those bonds. Purchase bonds from the, from the uh, Department of the Treasury. Uh, it means that those instruments or those financial instruments, uh, bonds, stocks, so forth and so on, the, the the monies that accompany those bonds actually increase in value. When they increase in value, it means more money. The government has to pay out more money to the people who acquire those bonds. And particularly, we're talking about wealthy people, not poor people. And more importantly, when we talk about in terms of their benefits, there are also when we talk about the real harm to the real economy, let's keep in mind some a few things. I think it's important that we understand this. When they increase the supply of money, when it, when they, that is when the Federal Reserve borrows borrows money, in effect borrows money from the Treasury, in terms of bonds and stocks, it means that it's, it creates a high cost of living for us all. In the process, it creates inflation. This is what people have to understand. When we talk about inflation, what we're simply saying is, is we're talking about an invisible tax. Why the invisible tax? Because essentially what happens is the government is creating opportunities for wealthy people to become more wealthier at the expense of the overall economy. So as a result of giving wealthy people all this money that doesn't go into the economy, the actual economy itself actually declines. And this is what we have to fundamentally understand. Also, when we talk about the, the extension of the creation of money in the society, we've got to understand one other thing. Now, when we talk about things like asset prices, like homes, cars, land, those kind of things, the value of those things continue to skyrocket, in part because of the U.S. government's uh, conscious plan to inject money into the system. Now, if this money in the system was used to benefit the real economy, then the economy would actually expand because when money flows through the system, it expands. But when you give it to rich people and they don't put it into the real economy, they put it into invest other investments, it means their wealth become more fabulous, but it does nothing for the real economy, which means that when we talk about homes, cars, all those land, all those kind of assets, their values increase, increase, increase. Ultimately, you get to a point in which nobody in society can afford those things, which means that this economy soon collapses. Please understand precisely what I'm saying. Thirdly, we have to say when thirdly when we talk about the increase of money money into the into the into the economic system, understand that with that increase injection of money into the system, keep in mind the, the, the value of borrowing money becomes that much more expensive. In other words, money becomes more expensive because as the wealthy take that money and use it for their own investments, 
uh, it creates a scarcity in terms of money in the system that never gets into the system, which means that because the money doesn't get into the system, businesses don't expand simply because there's no money. All the money they do have is used for the further enrichment of or wealth and creation for the very wealthy people, which does nothing for the real economy. Here's a very simple question I have to ask people. Given that reality in terms of how capitalism works, here's the reality. Who do you think will be blamed for the structural economic decline? As this economy decline, who do you think the people in positions of power are going to blame? Well, here's a hint. It won't be the wealthy. Understanding that, you know, we've got some real challenges before us. We have to begin to understand the nature of the threat that exists in society. And, of course, brother, and having said that, Brother Africa, I always encourage people to unravel the matrix because the matrix is key in terms of understanding precisely what's going on in society and how those changes adversely impact the well-being of people inside the society. This government does a very good job of pitting poor people against each other. And make no mistake about it, given the level of ignorance in the society, the government relatively easily can pit people against one another simply because, you know, uh, the, the, with declining schools, uh, with, with, with the lack of opportunity in terms of, you know, higher education because of cost, the bottom line is that uh, a lot of us are actually, you know, sitting stool pigeons, you know, for the government in terms of, you know, it's kind of uh, – it's kind of our policies are geared toward tricking us into believing that the problem is not so much the system, the problem is with one another. We have to fundamentally reject this notion that the problem is other poor people and begin to understand that the problem is uniquely a system in place which is designed to benefit the wealthy at the expense of 90% of the population. Having said that, Brother Africa, you have a good night. This is say back at you, Brother Haki, and to all our panelists and analysts and our special guests. Brother Ike from the Cuba Sea Coalition, and of course, to our listening audience and our supporters. We thank you for allowing us to come to your homes this evening where we can speak to, speak to the powerful and the powerless. We hope that we have provided you with some information, and this information, information can be used as a tool for your liberation and your people, and to make it better humanity. Until next time, remember you can catch Africa on the Move on Sundays at 7 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. At the same time, if you have any questions, comments, as relates to this program or others, please email us at africaonthemove2 at gmail. And at the same time, if you'd like to support us financially, you can do that by cash app, which is dollar sign, capital L, small e, small e. Small C, small R, small O, small B, or Gonzalez at Africa on the Move 2 at gmail.com. Until next time, let's always remember to strive to go forward, ever, back or never, and remember to fight for Pan-Africanism is the key. Once the objective is, is stopped, it will solve all. It will make all Africans free. So until next time. We'll see you next week, and this has been Africa on the Move. So we leave you with some sounds of sweet liberation. We'll see you next week. Living in pain, today is the same, and nothing ever changes. Hung by a noose, 
can't tell the truth, filled with abuse, and everywhere there's danger. How long can this go on? When will the life I see? I know I must be strong to last through my journey. Last through my journey. We must decide to get off the ride and stop going through these changes. We must prepare and learn how to care, but soon we'll be there while our lives won't be in danger. And when the light is clear, oh, how beautiful I will be to know. That I've been here and made it through my journey, yeah, and made it through my journey, yeah, 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 made it through my journey, made it through my journey, Hellerino. A bloodline across the waters from Benin to Salvador Bahia. A scar across the face of the earth. Pellerino, the place they brought the Africans, the place where they tried to make them slaves. Pellerino, you can feel the whip, hear the cries, and see the blood in the red clay. The clay that holds the stones together is African. And each stone is a bone from a people called slaves. Pellerino was the place where death came to dwell. His neighbors did not complain, for he was a way out. From the cold, gray, cobblestone streets to the lifeless cathedrals, tall walls of demons called angels, haunted visions of white faces crucifying Jesus again and again. But in the sacrifice of this blood, of this dance with death, comes life more rich, more pure, more alive, where death spent many lonely nights pacing the floors of his funeral parlor, waiting for someone to die. Pellerino, a French word called the place of torture, became a place of strength, a place where faces of white saints became faces of black gods, where haunted visions and demons became healing visionaries and orishas from the motherland. And Jesus rejoined his kinfolk and was reborn and baptized in the sound of sensual skin turned up to dance, to inspire a fire like the sun pronouncing his presence. Pellerino was the tongue of the flame, licking the eyes of those who have tried to remain blind, shining a light on a spirit that would not be denied. No, the chains did not break the spirit, did not enslave the music of my soul, did not shackle the will of my freedom, did not tarnish the glow of my gold, and all the Pellerinos in Africa, in Europe, in North and South America cannot destroy the majesty of my people, the love of my people, shining like the sun everywhere we go, everywhere we go.
I've seen you in the street and at your political convention. Talking of your crusades, talking of your nation, and other things too terrible to mention. And you proclaim your Christianity, you proclaim your love of God, you talk of apple pie and mine. I've just got one question, can I want an answer? Tell me, who would Jesus bomb? Cause they're not Jews like him Maybe Jesus would bomb the Afghans On some kind of vengeful whim Maybe Jesus would drive an M1 tank And he would shoot Saddam Who would Jesus bomb? On the TV and on the battleships, I've seen you in the house on the hill. And I've heard you talking about making the world safer and about all the men you have to kill. And you speak so glibly about your civilization and how you have the moral higher ground. While halfway around the world, your explosives smash the buildings. You could only hear the sound. But maybe Jesus would sell landmines and turn on his electric chair. Maybe Jesus would show no compassion for his enemies in the lands way over there. Maybe Jesus would have flown the plane that killed the kids in Vietnam. Who would Jesus bomb? You shout with confidence as you praise the Lord And you talk about this God you know so well You talk of Armageddon and your final victory When all the evil forces go to hell Well, you'd best hope you've chosen wisely On the right side of the Lord And when you die, your conscience, it is clear You'd best hope your atom bombs are better than the sword At the time when your reckoning is here I don't think Jesus would send gunships into Bethlehem Or jets to raise the towns of Timorese I don't think Jesus would lend money to dictators Or drive those SUVs I don't think Jesus would ever have dropped A single ounce of napalm Who would Jesus bomb? Jesus bomb. Who would Jesus bomb? Michael, eles não ligam pra gente.
in a world like today, it's a rare occasion to be able to see young mothers like the ones that were around when I grew up. But they live on in memory to quite a few of us. And this song is dedicated to those who cherish that memory. Early one Sunday morning Breakfast was on the table There was no time to eat She said to me Boy, hurry to Sunday school with a Lord of glory We learned the holy story She'll always have her dreams Despite the things This troubled world can bring Oh, say Don't you know we love you, sweet say Just try, just try one more time and 